Welcome to TV7 Israel's podcast. We invite you to listen and share our latest content from Israel and the region. This week marks exactly one year since Russian forces mounted a full-scale invasion of its western neighbor Ukraine, an act of aggression which seemingly caught much of the world by surprise despite repeated actions and rhetoric indicating Moscow's ill intent, which included the unopposed annexation of Crimea eight years prior. In contrast, the western response despite intensifying fractures that emerged amongst NATO member states which reached an all-time low in the aftermath of the disengagement from Afghanistan, clearly caught the Russian leadership by surprise as the once-faltering NATO alliance managed to re-emerge by tightening its ranks in firm support of Ukraine's sovereignty and national integrity. Good evening, I'm Jonathan Hassan, and welcome to the 13th edition of TV7 Europa Stands. Joining us to dissect Europe's state of internal and foreign affairs, our Dr. Rafael Bardahi, who is Spain's former national security advisor and CEO of Worldwide Strategy. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Colonel Kemp, uh, who is the former chairman of the Intelligence Committee of the British Cabinet Office and commander of British forces in Afghanistan. Pleasure to be here. Professor Uri Rosenthal, who is the former minister of foreign affairs of the Netherlands. And to be here. Mr. Timo Soini, who is also a former minister of foreign affairs and deputy prime minister of our host country. Here in Finland. Nice to be included. Indeed. <laughs> well, Dr. Bardahi, when we're talking about the war, uh, the Russian war in Ukraine, of course, this war is far from over. How would you define European efforts in support of Kiev in this campaign? Well, first of all, we have to remind that none of the strategic goals pursued by Putin has been achieved. You know? uh, but neither the Ukrainian attempt to recover the territory of their own soil has been achieved either. So we have been in a kind of a stalemate. Nonetheless, that situation may change brief, uh, sooner than later for two reasons. One is that the Russians need to exploit the window of vulnerability that is happening now in, in Ukraine, running out of ammunition. Uh, the delivery of uh, weapons from NATO countries are not going to happen until April, May, or June. So there is a window for opportunity for the Russian troops to try to make any gain, our new gains, or new advances. Actually, all the intelligence services are providing information that the Russians are accumulating and concentrated mechanized units and more personnel to, re to replenish the combat units in the front line. The last week, there were some attempts to getting close to two major cities in Donbass still under the Ukrainian uh, control, Krasnodar, uh, North and Slovyansk. I think today they may be under 20 miles uh, from those cities, which means that by tomorrow, if they continue that, to the advance, they will be under artillery fire. So the Russian has to make uh, uh, all the gains they can now. Could they go farther into the Ukrainian proper western part? It's an open question. We have to see it. Indeed, of course, in two days' time, there will be the speech of uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin. Yeah, that's very important to listen to him and see the tune, the wording, and how he presents the case 
uh, and the gains or the lack of gains and uh, what could be his next moves. What he says and what he does not say. Yep. Indeed. Colonel Kemp? As Raphael says, I think um, Putin has not achieved his strategic objectives in the war in a year of fighting and, and a huge loss of life on both sides, as well as vast costs for Russia, for Ukraine and for much of the world. Um, although <clears throat> I think in net terms, Putin today occupies a significantly greater proportion of, a, of a Ukraine than he did at the start of the war, so he has made some gains. Um, I, I think in, in some ways you can look at this current situation um, as an arms race because, uh, as you mentioned, Ukraine is running out of ammunition. They're very short of ammunition. Western countries are struggling to sustain the huge amount of weapons that are being fired, particularly, I think, on a daily basis, they're firing about 6,000 artillery shells. Uh, and this, put, this is putting them in a weaker and weaker position on top of the huge number of casualties they've taken. Russia, on the other hand, has no shortage of ammunition. They may, may have a shortage of precision ammunition, precision-guided missiles, but they've got vast quantities and are building more and more artillery shells, which are the real killers in this war. Beyond everything else, artillery shells are the killers. So it, in, in some ways, it's, a, it, it's a, uh, a, an arms race. And I think we, we are going to see in the coming um, days a major Russian offensive. It's already started in what, what are termed in the military as shaping operations to prepare the battlefield for a major offensive in one or more places. And I think we're going to see that develop. And, and uh, I, 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 I actually struggle to see how Ukraine is going to sustain itself with its ammunition shortages, uh, with its massive uh, number of couches it's taken against a really concerted Russian effort. But having said that, we've seen Russian failure in the past when they should have achieved victory. Indeed, Professor Rosenthal. Well, actually, I'm, I'm thinking back to 24th of February last year. I was in the studio. I was asked what will happen. And my story was very simple. It was about a decapitation strategy on the part of the Russians, bringing their, uh, their uh, uh, paratroopers inside Kiev, killing the whole lot, and it would be over. And I was very much mistaken. And uh, um, I have been struck up till this very day about the enormous numbers of failures or in the assessment in the Moscow by Putin and his guys. It's unbelievable. I, I, I can easily count some 20 or 30 strategic and also, uh, Richard is talking about it, military uh, misjudgments. And by now, I also remember that we first thought it would be a matter of weeks then there were some of the analysts and politicians who were saying it will take months and it, it had a shocking effect. And now we are one year on and I'm thinking about this idea of a war of attrition, war fatigue on the, on, on the side of the West and that sort of things. And uh, um, at the same time, Right from the beginning, I, I have been in diplomacy, and there you always talk about making 
agreements, not with friends, but with enemies. And you're talking about disagreement, or agreement to disagree. And I'm still actually uh, sticking to that, I would nearly say, optimistic notion that at a certain moment there will be disagreement to disagree. And it will come from also from the United States and from especially also several European countries. That would be my judgment for this indeed. moment. Mr. Sweeney? Yeah, I, I, I praise Ukrainians because if we think that uh, one year they have bravely been able to defend their country and sovereignty, I think that Russia thought that they would overcome Ukraine very quickly. They, they have tried to corrupt the system for decades. They have bought many people on their side. But Ukraine was less corrupted than they suspected. And their own armed forces were so co corrupt. They, they sold all the gasoline from the tanks and there, there was shortage of petrol when they tried yeah, to went, went over and, and, and uh, things like that. But I was surprised in that sense that the Russian action plan worked very well from 2008. Georgia, uh, then it was mm. Crimea, and then they have this ongoing Minsk process. They have assassinations, Skripal, and threatening and killing, and everything went their way. They actually, they were able to rescue Assad. They were building a, a companionship with Iran. Mm. And, and that's all now more or less wasted when, when they uh, played over their card in, in, in Russia. And that is, that is the good thing. But, uh, but like Richard said, ammunition problem is, is a serious one because we, we have shortage in the West and we cannot put our last cannon balls at stake. We must preserve a certain reserves to the national law. Yeah, we will revert back to the matter of, of weaponry, if I may, okay. uh, because I think this is a topic that we need to focus on also, uh, considering the fact that many aspects of this may be the, the diktat for both Western cohesion and the capacity to allow uh, Kiev withstand Moscow's uh, intent, but also at the same time it will uh, decide the, the, the field. Uh, what's going to happen in the field. Uh, but rather, if we may now, Dr. Bardahi, focus on uh, your perspective. Uh, to what degree or how would you define the current state of European efforts in support of Kiev, taking the, the uh, terminology from those leaders who come out and say sovereignty, you know, national cohesion, not even to allow one centimeter to go, at the same time, we see those same institutions uh, back within the context of the European Union fighting against the sovereignty of its own member states. Well, I think uh, all countries within NATO and the European Union are willing to help Ukraine with ammunition, all the fungible items that a war require, but they are quite divided and fragmented into offensive systems with high capability to reach uh, Russian soil. Nobody wants to lend the Ukrainians a plane that may be shot down by the Russians and be considered an, an hostile or an act of war against our own countries. No? So we are in this, caught in this dilemma, strengthening our deterrence in our territory, 
lending some help to, to, to the Ukraine, but not to the point where we can start a fire uh, directly with Russia, which is a very delicate balance because the Russian can interpret our help in, different way, in, a, in a different way that we are doing. So uh, the question today is the list, the, the buying list of equipment by uh, Kiev and the, the ones we are willing to, to give them, uh, particularly the uh, aircraft, aircraft uh, like F-16s and other combat aircraft that are really a little bit too much for our own taste. Strategically speaking, no? Colonel Camp, <clears throat> I think there's been a lot of heel dragging in Europe, um, and and we just have to think of, first of all, Germany's um, refusal to uh, to allow any combat weapons to be given to Ukraine except for helmets, which was laughable actually if it wasn't so tragic. We've come uh, a long way from that point. Though. Yeah, we have, but they until very recently they continued to drag their heels over the provision of leopard tanks to Ukraine uh, and were forced to really embarrassed to doing so. They didn't want to. And not only didn't they want to provide leopards, they didn't want other countries who'd purchase leopards to supply them either. So I think we've seen a lot of that. We're seeing the same, um, I think, the same kind of heel dragging over provision of ammunition. And, it, it, you know, months ago, we should have been having this discussion about ammunition. It's been evident for a long time this was going to be a very lengthy war. And yet countries weren't prepared to bite the bullet and start upping the, not, not stocks of ammunition, but upping the manufacture of ammunition. That should have been done long before now. I think I, my, my overall observation is that, you know, Europe's done a great deal. Each European country pretty much has done a lot of, a lot of stuff to support Ukraine. But uh, I think it's in, in, in the bigger picture, it's probably been too little compared to what they could have done and also too late. Um, so everybody should learn more from the United Kingdom? Well, the, the, UK, the UK, I think, took a leading role without a doubt. Uh, and, and also not, not just in providing the uh, equipment support, but also in encouraging other countries in, in Europe and elsewhere to do so. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's a, I, I just think there's, a, 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 there's been a reluctance. I think, there's, I, I, in my view, there was quite a lot of big talk at the beginning um, less action to deliver, and a hope, and not, not, not a hope, but an expectation early on that this war wouldn't last very long and that Ukraine would be overrun. I think that was the expectation of many people. Yeah. So they were talking big, but, you know, expecting not to be very effective. And I think that, you know, that, 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 that must also be considered alongside uh, President Macron's persistent desires to give Putin an off-ramp in other words, to give him to, to allow him to have victory over Ukraine, which is, you know, it's code for that. It can't mean anything else. Uh, and, and also, I think Germany's uh, ingrained closeness to Russia and desire to see, you know, one of the reasons I think they didn't want a German tanks to go eastward. I don't think it's anything to do with their history at all. I think that's just a convenient excuse. And I think the real reason was they didn't want to anger Putin both in, a, in terms of not provoking him to something more extreme, but also in terms of future relationships with Putin. So let me ask you uh, three <coughs> points, and I think this will be also a follow-up for Professor Rosenthal. Uh, the first one, we had uh, Sky News 
quote uh, a American general who came out and said uh, or warned that the British military uh, no longer top-level fighting force defense source uh, reveals and, and uh, communicating about the, the weakness that emerged in light of the vast give it all away uh, type of policy that the United Kingdom pursued and then the second angle pertains to a report also that came out actually from the United Kingdom where it said uh, it doesn't have enough ammunition to even withstand one day of uh, battle with Russia because of everything that it gave to uh, the Ukrainians. Is this all an exaggeration uh, considering the context of, of the fact that ultimately the stocks in, again we're going back to the munitions, but it has given so much away. Maybe the Germans were looking at this and saying, you know what, we don't want to give everything away and then be left without nothing. We're a lot closer to the Russians. And at the same time, also consider the fact that when you give very advanced munitions, ultimately, and everybody on this table knows this, these weapons will be captured at some point and uh, will be reverse engineered and, and their qualitative edge in the field might be lost because of it. Yeah, I think that latter point, I've heard that used by people saying, we don't want to supply these weapons, tanks or whatever, Abrams tanks, because they might get the, you know, get information about the armor. On well, don't don't have those tanks then, because if you're not going to use them to fight and risk them being captured, they're, they're pointless. I think that's a <coughs> bit of a daft argument that that, that, that people have made um, as an excuse, I think, not to deliver the goods. But but going back to your your point about the, the state of the British armed forces, it's in a disgraceful state. The British armed forces, it's been run down and hollowed out by consecutive governments over decades to the extent now um, that we've got something like we've got something like 200 tanks and most of them or many of them can't be used they're not serviceable in any case and we're looking at going down to 184 tanks uh, sorry 148 tanks which is nothing it's absolutely nothing if you're fighting a war we, we're, we're cutting the size of our infantry which Ukraine has again demonstrated. It's not drones and it's not cyber that win battles. It's infantry soldiers, tanks, and above all, artillery. Mm. So, so yeah, we're, we're in a parlous state, and, and people who have expressed concern about the British Armed Forces are right to do so. And the Defence Secretary acknowledges it. He's asked, I think he's asking now for another $10 billion into the defence budget in order to restore some kind of credibility in defence. So I, I, I think that's... Um, a reasonable argument and and I think yeah, of course by giving up some of our weapons and ammunition of course it weakens us because we started from a very low base but that's a, I guess that's a, a kind of strategic judgment made by the Prime Minister and the Defence Secretary. I think if, if I may just give you an, uh, an example to clarify the numbers we are talking about the Ukrainian forces are consuming artillery shells in a week equivalent to an average NATO country buys in three years. Yeah. So that's the rate of consumption. So even if we keep our stocks, it will be impossible mm -hmm. to produce yeah. in such a kind of rhythm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Are they doing so efficiently, yeah. though? That's also a question. That well, we that's another question. Indeed. Well, Professor Rosenthal, uh, two points that I'd like to raise with regard to the Netherlands in cooperation with Germany, of course, uh, communicated the fact that they're going to sure. procure 100 uh, Leopard tanks in order to uh, right. deliver it to. Uh, the Ukrainians, at a time, by the way, where the Netherlands needs to lease 18 tanks in order to participate Absolutely. in NATO exercises, Absolutely. which doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but that's a different story. Absolutely. And at the same point, <laughs> I'd like to ask about the fact that actually Colonel Kemp sent me this report, 
where uh, the Netherlands is now considering merging its military together with the German military, sure. which yeah. is, again, bringing into question supporting <laughs> Kiev in defending itself in order to defend its own national sovereignty, while here the Netherlands is giving away all defense that was fought for during World War II. You're teasing. <laughs> <laughs> and you're teasing the more because I, I should be um, sitting here utterly ashamed about the fact that during my terms of office in 2012, we tried to sell, to sell our last 200 tanks to Indonesia. That didn't work because of human rights uh, things in Indonesia. But then the Finns were so were so willing, nice <laughs> to buy them from us. So yeah, we were didn't. tankless. <laughs> and uh, today I should say that uh, my country, as other member states in NATO, in the Western side, are really stepping up when it is about the finance. And what we are doing is actually indeed, while we have not the uh, material which is needed to help Ukraine, we help out other countries in Europe uh, by financing their deals. So we are doing our best. And at this very moment, of course, the big discussion is uh, in the NATO uh, frame whether we have even to step up beyond our 2% of national income, gross uh, national product, to 3%, which would be huge. Huge. And if I may add to the whole thing, when I take a more um, uh, basic perspective, um, nobody expected the uh, European countries to do what it has done, what they have done over the last year. Nobody expected it. And you see how, for instance, now with this uh, delivery of tanks, um, Scholz, uh, the Bundeskanzler in Germany, was uh, considered to be the bad guy. And now Scholz is saying to the others who have to deliver the tanks and the promises, he says, you are under-delivering. Where are you? So uh, taking it all together, I, I would say that uh, things could have been worse than they are on the Western side. And also the UK, by the way, Richard, they, they do really a lot. And uh, we can be happy that the UK, through the NATO channel, is doing a large part of the job. So it could have been worse. I, I, I also think that Putin thought it would be worse. I think it, that was a factor in his decision-making. He didn't expect this from the West. Yeah, and he is still, and he is still thinking that the West will, after all, suffer from huge war fatigue, that we will have to uh, put our... Uh, we have to uh, actually give up in a number of ways because our dependency on his oil and gas, that is also changing the equation. So, in general, you know, um, Putin is in problems. We have problems, but I would say I would rather be on the Western side at this moment than 
on his side. That's an understatement. With that being said, Mr. Soini, when you're looking about, uh, at least from an overview, uh, holistically, you look at the last year uh, with all that relates to the Russian-Ukraine war, uh, would you say Finland is uh, more secure today than it was uh, in the first days of the war? Or uh, is it in a position where the Russians are still not deterred and have uh, quite a contingency mm -hmm. in case or in the event of uh, some northern conflagration? I think that we are in fairly good position in, in, in that sense. That Russia knows us and we know Russia. We are neighbors, <laughs> 1,340 kilometers. They know how our side looks like. We know our, how their side look like uh, in St. Petersburg, uh, in Murmansk. They are so near. But, but the good thing, what, what the Finns were able to do, whatever the color of the government w was, we have still compulsory conscription in, in Europe. Mm. We have every year 20,000 men trained to be soldiers and 1,500 women. Everybody has to go. And it has been ongoing all the time. I was there in 1980s. I'm corporal by rank, so that is two stripes. But it was quite tough at the 1980s. It was a city boy. This was not the not not <laughs> not the outfit of myself <laughs> that Ar Ar vest. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and I think in that sense. But uh, what I what I uh, think all all around that Russia was surprised even so that how united the European Union still was, even so we have these bailout problems, we have inflation, what, whatever kind of troubles uh, and, and division in our countries, uh, that, is, uh, that is one thing. And they were diplomatically very successful. For example, if we think the Minsk process was created after the uh, uh, invasion of Crimea. Who were the players? Ukraine, mm -hmm. Russia, Germany and France. Where were the hardliners? Where were UK? Where were Poland? Where were Baltic countries? They had a structure to run the show by themselves with those guys who were ready to, to give in, more or less. Indeed. Well, let's communicate a little bit about uh, intra-European affairs, talking about the same uh, leader of Germany who was back then, uh, Chancellor Angela Merkel, who basically pulled the reins uh, throughout Europe uh, for much yeah, of that sure. uh, time. Uh, she, I'll bring two uh, short quotes of hers. Uh, European cohesion is the cornerstone of our shared uh, future. And nationality is not just a matter of birthplace or language, but of shared values and traditions. Is that something that has dictated the, the uh, present of uh, European uh, realities, if that matter? Actually, I do believe that the European Union officials are totally out of touch with reality. And I think uh, the lessons learned in the last year has driven them even more crazy. Uh, last, uh, la last week, they approved this new norm or regulation that by 2035 all cars in Europe has to be electric. Well, if you think that's going to put a stop of the shock of the energy shortage we have, it's, it's ridiculous. No, I think uh, the situation in which we are now is, uh, is because we 20 years and particularly 10 years ago, the European Union chosen to have very expensive energy sources and not to 
lead the, con the continent into a more autonomous way. You know? uh, all the subsidies to wind, solar panels, and everything has not produced the result they wanted, but still they are committed to that. No? So in that sense, I'm very, very pessimistic that the European Union is learning the, the right lessons to learn and that they are in a, in, a, in a escape way out of this situation on the wrong direction. Uh, so I I actually, thanks to Angela Merkel, all the, almost all the countries, with the exception of France and the UK, uh, decided to get rid of, of nuclear power stations. No? So <coughs> uh, I'm not sure where we're going sincerely. No? Well, of course, uh, as uh, Donald Tusk at the time said, uh, and this is a quote of his, European cohesion must be founded on the principles of liberty, democracy, and the rule of law. But uh, if we go to the, the ancient Greek, ultimately, demos kratos, power to the people, uh, the, the, they're the, taking it away from the people. The, they're the, not giving the, it to the them. The problem that the mantra of the European Union has been and still is cohesion. Cohesion. And we, we can be the more cohesive way on the bridge of the Titanic and sing all together singing. But we are going to die <laughs> altogether, happily. So cohesion is a means to something. It cannot be an end. And I think the European Union has transformed the rational goals that they had in the very beginning to a kind of bureaucratic monster that have lost the course, the path, and the, and the, the final goal to achieve. No? Uh, and, uh, and particularly in the latest year where all this woke mentality has permeated many institutions. Indeed. Colonel Camp, you're probably enjoying this part. <coughs> I would invite any of the people around the table to, uh, to join us in leaving the EU, um, if you wish. I, I, th I think, I mean, pretty much what Rafael was saying there kind of sums up a lot of the reason why Britain left the EU. And um, the, the, the pri certainly from my perspective as a, a fervent Brexiteer, um, it was all about maintaining our national sovereignty and our democracy, which was undermined by the EU. Uh, and I think it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a, a flawed entity which is so consumed <coughs> with its desire. It, th I think it's so consumed with its desire to, to bring power to itself and to have superpower status that it's, uh, you know, the, the, the important issues like individual national characteristics and democratic uh, rights in different countries is being rud rough, uh, ridden roughshod over. And I think the, the um, you know, uh, just an example of that, of that determination to be, uh, to be a superpower, which, which it is not. Uh, so it's a superpowerless. So yes, yes, indeed, indeed. Is, is, is the <laughs> obsession which has raised its head yet again recently of creating a European army. And, and of course, you know, that, that's a, that was a pet project of Merkel. It's a pet project of Macron as well. I think he described NATO as brain dead. Uh, and of course, that, that, you know, that in itself is, is going to undermine the EU even further because it, if it came to any form of fruition, um, it would, hmm. it would you know, be severely damaging for Europe's defense. So you're saying when President Macron uh, uh, stated the following European cohesion must be based on mutual respect and the protection of national identities, he was blatantly lying? Oh, I certainly wouldn't call Monsieur Macron a liar, but uh, I think he's probably deluded um, or, or, you know, following the script or whatever. But, it, but of course, you know, of course <coughs> it's not true. Of course, uh, you know, the, the priority for it, and it, it, it really is the reason we left 
Britain left, I think, to, to, to the main reason was the fact that we were being prevented from exercising our national sovereignty um, and, and having EU regulation, you know, paying a huge amount of money for the privilege of having EU regulations forced But out by leaving, you didn't get the respect from the European Union. You got more discontent and, and uh, uh, foul play, if I may call it uh, that way. Absolutely. And, you know, from the very beginning, they wanted to show... They, I mean, the, the idea, I think, from the start was to, to demonstrate to us through numerous statements and warnings and threats that we would suffer from, losing, from leaving the club. And they've been doing everything they can to bring that about, including regarding the Northern Ireland Protocol, where, in effect, the EU have annexed Northern Ireland to themselves. Um, and, and, you know, and, and, and that, that is not, there's no logic to it. It's all about punishing the UK, and they will continue doing that. <coughs> they will. Professor Rosenthal, <laughs> the Netherlands is uh, the favourite of the European Union these days, probably, uh, considering the government's uh, unrelenting efforts to uh, follow through not only uh, for instance, on climate change, uh, talking about uh, the the changes that are forced upon society um, at a time when everybody else, uh, not only the nation states <laughs> represented here around the yeah. table, but around the European Union, are lagging behind quite substantively. Uh, how can you explain that uh, when it comes so vigorously at the expense of the people themselves? Well. Uh, let me say that um, um, the Netherlands, some people in the Netherlands are, whether you like it or not, proud to be among the few ones who once started the whole thing in Europe, um, 1957. On the other hand, we have had a, a period where there were serious talks about Nexit, exec, uh, especially from the radical right. That all has been dwindling. And uh, at the moment, I would say, and I follow suit on what Rafael is talking about, uh, I would in any case love to see more debate in my country and in other countries about a very strange situation institutional, institution-wise in Europe. When I hear that the European Commission is uh, instructing all kinds of countries in, in the EU to do this or to do that. I always think that the European Council, which is the gathering of the political leaders in Europe, is the institution to say what has to be done or not. Where did it go wrong? Well, it went wrong in, a typical, in the typical way in which bureaucracies at a certain moment actually dominate the political leadership. And that you see in European Commission, the more so because the European Commission is composed of uh, commissioners who have a political affiliation in their own country and in the currents in the European Parliament. Uh, the prototype of this uh, kind of people is my successor in the Dutch cab cabinet once, Frans Timmermans, who is now the second uh, in command in the European Commission and who considers himself to be the second in command of the European countries, which he is not. That's one point. The second is, and I would like to 
raise it, if, if I may, again in the context of Ukraine, when I look at the picture of Europe internationally and globally, I would say that Europe has been more united than we expected in February last year, but it is thanks to the fact that these European countries are bound to be within the union of the NATO, led by the United States. And that makes for a puzzle for me when I hear, for instance, Macron talking about strategic autonomy of Europe in order not to be sandwiched between China on the one hand and the US on the other hand, while the fact is that Ukraine shows that European un unity is only really achievable within the aegis of NATO led by the United States. That would be my position. Very interesting yeah. indeed. Yeah. Mr. Sweeney? Uh, I have seen uh, uh, the reality of the European Union in uh, three different positions and angles. As a national MP, as a European Union MP, and as right. a cabinet, cabinet right. minister. And, and my perception is that there are two uh, institutions which are federalistic, Commission and European Parliament. And then there is a nationalistic, is the Council of Ministers of the elected members sure, sure. Uh, of their own countries. And this goes on. Uh, and, and, uh, and a commission, nobody uh, has elected them. They are not accountability. They have accountability to anybody. And then the, the, the cream of the crop was Mr. Tusk. He was even not launched by the government of Poland, which was uh, oh, yeah. Law and right. Justice Party. It was nominated uh, uh, by the other European countries to Poland to have Mr. Tusk. That's democracy for you. But this comes very far away. For example, the constitution of uh, Europe, which was then uh, uh, altered to be Lisbon Treaty, Lisbon Treaty. Uh, the, the France said no, Dutch said no, Irish said no, vote again. And, but the UK is so big that it cannot be voted again. <laughs> and that is, that is the outcome of the election and that is very frustrating. If somebody which is not federalistic in any of the countries in the European Union is labeled to be extreme and, and, uh, and if, if that is not enough that you are labeled to be extreme, then they somehow try to cancel the outcome of the elections. The last example was Mrs. Meloni. He was, she wasn't included with uh, Macron and German guy who went to, for a visit. He was, he, was, <laughs> he was at Rome, but when Mario Draghi was the man, he was included. So what's the purpose of the vote? We must tolerate. This is the only way on the long run preserve the democracy. It's not the, the outcome of the election must be respected. I remember when I was a very, very young boy here in Finland and there was a joke that uh, there, there was a burglary in the, in the Communist Party of Russia. And they asked what was stolen? Nothing very important. The results of the next elections. <laughs> <laughs> I should also I should just inject here as a 
example of EU thinking, <laughs> or at least some of the prominent members of the EU. The, the, the great star of Brussels, Mr. Verhofstadt, is it Verhofstadt? Yes, that's Guy Verhofstadt. He said recently, just a few days <laughs> ago, that, that the, the, the cause of the war in Ukraine was Brexit. Yeah. So that's, you know. Well, I think I, ha I agree with blaming <laughs> the British no, in yeah. the sense that not because they left the European Union, but because they left so slowly yeah. and yeah. not fast enough because when they voted, it was a shocking Europe. Yeah. And I thought later on with Trump in the White House, it was the perfect moment to real push for transformation in a rational way into the European Union institutions. Mm -hmm. That moment was lost because the government in the UK was dragging their feet and negotiating things which were too slow to... I apologize. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I think it's also very important to note that the concept by the founding members was a different concept from what we see today. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And the confidence of the people of Europe by such a low turnover of voters... Right. Uh, it's just staggering to see it's, it's under 26% if yeah, I'm not mistaken. Yeah. What is yeah. really on the table right now is the, the, the problem that what, hap what started as an economic union, single market, the benefits of a single market, actually was overwhelmed in the end of this last century by this effort to get to a common currency, the euro which when you look at it really in a basic way, in a fundamental way, was a political decision. Yeah, absolutely. Making yeah. Europe, a European Union, a political project. And then it went out of uh, bound. Out of control. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. Yeah? Yeah. I'd like to bring another topic of discussion, something that might... Uh, let, let, let me add the final point on the European Union. Go ahead. Uh, We're still continuing a, a on the few, European a Union. Few, a few days ago, they approved uh, uh, the introduction of insects for producing um, processed uh, food in Europe. No? But when you look at the menu of the European Council, you don't see any ants, worms, <laughs> and cockroaches on there. That's beef and everything else. So in that, in that sense, the, the elite is really diverging from the rest of the human beings in Europe, and that's a risk. Good. Well... Uh, <laughs> This is not the topic that I had in mind, <laughs> but uh, I'd like to touch on, on a statement that was made uh, a couple of weeks ago by Chancellor Olaf Scholz, who uh, brought up while speaking to the Bundestag uh, the fact that the, uh, Germany wants more migration. They want more skilled migration, so to speak. Now, if we take into uh, the concept of, uh, context mm. of what we just were discussing, the fact that Angela Merkel who is a big proponent of migration, is the one who appointed Ursula von der Leyen, the current president of the European Commission. To what degree is this push by the left in Germany, by the current leadership there, going to influence migration of, let's face it, other cultures that are very dominant, namely from Muslim-majority countries, influxing into European cultures, and then, of course, having... Uh, a negative effect? Well, actually, in, during the 60s, one million people from Spain fled to Germany to work. And they produced uh, excellent results, not only because they were looking for getting rich and, you know, more professional-oriented, but because they respected the laws of the countries, the host. 
I think we have a problem now with the muzzling, mainly illegal immigration into European countries. Two days ago, uh, there was a TikTok video, which is viral now in every, uh, every platform, of a group of young Muslims in the Champs-Élysées in Paris saying, we are going to rape all European women, we are going to decapitate all European males. If I were saying so in public, I will be arrested by the police immediately after I leave this uh, uh, studio. Why they are not being arrested? Why they can say such a attacking, insulting, and criminal things to a population which we, we are providing with food, shelter, education to them not for free? Uh, Spain is spending in illegal immigration ben uh, benefits around 11 times the money we spend on our defense per year. So that's the balance of, of issue we have to confront. And to what extent, yes, all countries need immigration. I'm much more pro-immigration. I have studied in other countries. I have formed myself professionally in, in, outside of Spain. So I cannot be against that movement. But you have to put some limits. You have to respect the constitution, the norms, the habitude. You cannot impose your own views or religious views uh, in, the, in the host country. And particularly, you have to work. Uh, in Spain today, just because I, I know the data, uh, almost 65% of the illegal immigration, on the immigration we have, mainly illegal, are on the dole. They are not working. So they are just receiving social benefits. That's unsustainable. If they are coming just to benefit the, 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 our pensions, we are doing very badly. Uh, so I think we need to rethink the whole thing. No? We cannot not open the borders, but erase the borders that we are doing now in Europe. No? Angela Merkel, during the Syrian crisis, opened up the European borders no? uh, without any, mm -hmm. any, any consensus at all. No? So I think uh, immigration in the scale we are producing outside our sphere, our cultural civilizational sphere, is going to be a major problem in the years to come. Colonel Kemp, uh, the United Kingdom, of course, alongside the rest of Europe, has faced many attacks uh, by migrants, uh, and uh, some of those uh, statements that uh, were made and, and uh, unbelievable that the police does not react to something like this and does not have the backing to react to something like this, uh, have been actually executed, both in the United Kingdom as well as in France and elsewhere. Where is the government at a time of need? Well, the government uh, in Britain is, is um, cannot deal with this situation. They don't know how to deal with the situation they face. First of all, there are a vast number of illegal immigrants in the UK, many, as you say, from Islamic countries, which have a completely different cultural ethos um, and way of life to, to us. Um, there are already vast numbers, and there are vast numbers coming in from the EU, uh, these are people, some of whom are claiming asylum, coming from France. I'm not quite sure what's dangerous about France. They need to escape there to come from Britain, to, from there to come to Britain. But yeah, I suppose everyone can have They're a. They're persecuted by other denominations in Israel. Right. Yeah. Well, <laughs> um, but uh, so, so, yeah. So the, 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 the there's already the problem that you explained, which includes, but it's not restricted to um, terrorist attacks. On top of that, there is. Um, you know, we've 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 had uh, huge problems with what are, what are rather kind of um, obscurely referred to as grooming gangs, which means rape gangs of Islamic young Islamic men and sometimes older Islamic men who are raping young 
uh, non-Islamic women in, 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 in large numbers. And that, that's been going on for a long, long time with very little action taken and actually the police deliberately turning a blind eye to it for fear of being accused of Islamophobia or racism or whatever. So uh, there, are, there, are, there are many other similar problems, but that, that exists now, that's, that's with us now, and, we're, and it's increasing with the vast amount of illegal immigration from the EU coming to the UK. Um, and, and the, you know, the, the, I said the government doesn't know what to do, they, they don't know what to do about it. They don't know how to get rid of, uh, of illegal immigrants out of the UK, but they have to. There has to be something done because we are at a stage now. Out of political considerations. Sorry? Mm. Due to political considerations. Well, the, the, there is political pressure on them to, um, to, 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 to stop the immigration. There's political pressure, but, but there's, there's no action. And they, they simply don't know how to do it because, you know, they, the, the, there's a huge fear. If you, if you somehow manage to forcibly get rid of illegal immigrants or forcibly mm. prevent them from coming in, then you're a, you're a racist. And right. that's, that's, that's pretty clear. But, but I think, you know, the, the, the fundamental question is, do we want to retain our current culture or the, what, what is left of our current culture? Or do we not? And if we're happy to give it away and let the UK become an African or Middle Eastern country, then fine, let's, let's, let's let it carry on. But that's going to be the consequence. There was a discussion about the fact that uh, at a time, uh, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan turned Hagia Sophia from a museum yeah, after yeah. the compromise into a mosque, a point that uh, didn't really have any backlash. Yeah. And now he's angry about Islamophobia supposedly where uh, there are no figures and there are no uh, basis for those allegations. And uh, there was uh, quite interesting, a head of intelligence of a European country, I won't name him as our conversation was personal, uh, he came out and he said, if we don't want every church to turn into a Hagia Sophia, something needs to be done, mm. there is no political will to do so. Mm. But the, the, I think that we need to make a distinction now because we, when we see the images of people coming by boat to the UK, to Spain, to Italy, we think about all the human needs they suffer and mm. all these guys who are coming, poor guys, because mostly are guys, not yeah, females, yeah, guys. No? and young, military age actually. Mm. We need to think in terms of human trafficking because they are paying thousands of dollars to organizations that are really using them for illegal activities. <coughs> And, and, and we need to go after those who are really the infrastructure Absolutely. Uh, and, and make the people think that this is an illegal criminal activity mm -hmm. that we are favoring because we just open our arms to those poor people. No? Professor Rosenthal? Yeah, we call it the uh, asylum and immigration industry. Yeah. We call it literally. And that we have to do something about these smugglers and that sort of guys, definitely. What, what strikes me again and again in the European context is actually, and it's, it's actually following up on what you are saying, Rafael, we have two categories. We have people looking for asylum, political asylum, but just asylum, for the very fact that they come from countries where they are, if they don't escape their country, will be tortured to death, etc. Syria and Assad, etc. No problem with them when they come. But at the same time, we have economic fortune seekers. That's another story. And the nasty thing of the whole thing is that when in Europe, a economic fortune seeker 
those who coming from Libya on the boats mm. are putting their boots on the ground in uh, European soil and they say we want to have asylum which they are not going for. They want to get in and to, to earn money or to benefit from uh, social allowances. When they are there and they say we look for asylum, they go into a endless procedure which is protected by their lawyers, by the lawyers industry and it goes on and on. And that is what happening in my country to the extent that at this moment we have a cabinet of four parties and they are actually split in the middle over this what we call in the Netherlands the asylum crisis. And some want to follow suit on Angela Merkel, wir schaffen das. We will make it one million, two million, three million, no problem, we will make it. And the others, my party for instance, which says there is at a certain moment a limit to what society can actually bear. And one of the problems to add to this is that we do, that again and again, the story is that we have to follow international law and international mm -hmm. treaties. But when there is a treaty called the Dublin Agreement, which says that the country where they enter European soil has to take care of them, then suddenly this Dublin doesn't work according to the Brussels European Commission. Yeah. And we are left empty-handed. Going back to the question, to what degree does Ursula von der Leyen impact uh, the decision-making, considering the fact that she has all her political chips with Angela Merkel, who is a proponent of this matter? Absolutely. Uh, well, and, and uh, within her party, also from von der Leyen, uh, Ursula von der Leyen is under, under, under heavy pressure now by her party leadership in uh, Germany, uh, Mr. Metz, you know, so that's, that's the situation. Very interesting indeed. Uh, of course, situation. some may start uh, waking up the moment they start realizing that they're strangers yeah, but, in their own but countries. May, may, I, may I make one minor comment? One sentence, because we're running out okay, of time. Okay, sorry, small comment. I would nearly say, would it be Islam etc., which makes for the problems. In my country, we have one million people from Turkish or Moroccan origin. These guys and girls who are actually going into crime again and again, and ever more seriously, they, it has nothing to do for them with their Muslim background. It is simply because they don't get education. They don't get actually education in their own families etc. So because there's, uh, if I may interject, their Islamic culture bars them from integrating into Christian societies. Yeah. yeah. Mr. Soini, we're running out of time. Briefly, you have two minutes. <laughs> I, I think that uh, what we saw just before the war started in Ukraine was the spillover from Belarus to Poland and what Poland did it, uh, it uh, prohibited uh, those immigrants to come. But when uh, the great uh, crisis started 2015, 
Germany let them all come over and there was some one million people coming all over. And, and, and that was a sign and, and uh, after that European Union reacted, we make a deal with Turkey, Turkey, Turkey's or Turkey, what we must now say politically <coughs> correct, says that they are uh, providing three million people in Syria and European Union is paying for, for that yes. to Turkey. And, uh, and this is the problem in many ways that, uh, that uh, immigration problems can be, cannot be said aloud because you are getting the label to your forehead to be Islamophobic or, or mm. wh whatever racist. The only people who are persecuted in the European countries are confessing Christians. They are in the courthouse for, uh, for praying outside the abortion clinic or like in Finnish Päivi Räsänen case because she said uh, something that uh, marriage is between man and woman. If St. Paul would arrive to Helsinki now, he wouldn't go to the church but to the courthouse. Indeed. This well, crazy. as uh, we delivered a bit <laughs> before the program took place, uh, if you pray today before in front of uh, abortion clinics in Spain and the UK, you get arrested. Yeah, yeah, you get arrested and sentenced to jail. Indeed. Well, uh, depends on the religion, of course. Mm. Well, Muslims are not praying in front of the uh, abortion right. clinic yet. Well, <laughs> unfortunately, this is all the time that we have for today. We will deliberate uh, the other topics next month in our discussion. Uh, there is uh, the accession, of course, of uh, Sweden and uh, Finland that is uh, being uh, brought into question because of Turkey blaming uh, Sweden for Islamophobia uh, and uh, other uh, reasons, of course, attached to its own elections uh, back home. But this is all the time that we have uh, today. Dr. Bardahi, Colonel Kemp, Professor Rosenthal and Mr. Soini, thank you so very much for today uh, being part of this panel. And I'd like to thank all of you at home as well. And until next time, wishing you a good evening. Thank you for joining us in another TV7 Israel podcast. For more content, visit our website at tv7israelnews.com or follow us on social media.